Michael Oshlink here. This is a special edition of the podcast. I have professional photographer Bo Simmons and Army Rangers Dan Blakely and Tom Amenta. They created the new book, The 20-Year War, a photojournal dedicated to veterans of the global war on terror and their stories. How you doing, Dan, Tom, and Bo? Doing great. Thanks for, thanks for having us. How are you? Thanks for having us, Mike. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Before we begin, I do want to do a shout out to J.C. Glick, who is also in the book, The 20-Year War, a friend of mine. And I've got to tell you guys, it's awesome to read his section there. So I actually learned that he's writing two books and he's questioning uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So the minute I read that, I actually reached out to him and he and I are speaking this coming weekend. It's like, <laughs> it's like I had to read about him in a book. So it's, it's good stuff. <laughs> uh, before we jump into your book, the 20 year war, you know, your all story, what led you to create this book? And I don't want to say author this book because it's more of a, in a, in an immense creation. And we'll get into that in a moment. But can you guys tell me your individual stories? And I know Dan and Bo, you guys have been friends for a long time. And Dan and Tom, you're also Rangers. So you share that in common. Yeah, I, I can start since I, I, I guess I'm the thread that ties the two together or the three of us together. Um, but yeah, I, I grew up, uh, kind of all over the place. My dad was in the air force and, um, and so I, I lived all over the place, but my grandparents have lived in Yucca Valley, California since I think I was three years old. And it just so happened, um, Bo grew up two doors down from my grandparents. So ever since I was six years old, you know, I've been knocking on Bo's door trying to hang out every summer. And uh, so we, we, you know, we've been friends basically our entire lives. I ended up moving to Yucca Valley a little later and uh, Bo and I went to high school together. I ended up graduating early and, and then uh, joining the army and ultimately ending up at second ranger battalion. Um, I did six years there, six tours, three of them to Iraq, three of them to Afghanistan. Um, and when I separated, I ended up at the North Carolina uh, in the North Carolina National Guard at the 139th um, Infantry Regiment teaching OCS, which is where Tom and I ran into each other. And uh, so he was an infantry, infantry instructor previously. He was there to kind of start up the new infantry school at the 139th. It ultimately fell through, didn't happen. We kind of had to pivot and, and teach um, OCS to, you know, up and coming officers and cadets. And uh and I knew his history from Ranger Up and, and everything he had done. We stayed connected over the years and fast forward eight years. And I reached out to Tom uh, once Bo and I started talking about this book, um, which was kind of by complete happen chance. Uh, Bo and I have stayed connected, but we've definitely like lost connection over the years. We didn't you know, communicate regularly. It was usually visiting, you know, once every couple of years or something. Um, but I'll let him tell his side of it, but uh, ultimately he decided to move his, you know, his whole life out here to North Carolina where I'm at. And uh, he was talking about doing a photo book and um, I had just started to try and reconnect kind of with my veteran roots. I said, I suppose you would call it. And um, that's when I told him, you know, this year is such an important year. It's the 20th anniversary of 9-11 and the global war on terrorism. You know, we really need to, we need to tell the stories of veterans and especially the veterans who have served, but let's not focus on the combat stories. Let's focus more so on the, 
uh, the journey and you know why you enlisted, what your service was like, and what it meant to you. But then let's let's focus on the transition piece and you know who these people are now and what they're doing today. So that's kind of kind of our story and how it all, all got connected. Oh, the, the last piece to that is um, once we got started, Bo and I got started, I called Tom. Tom was one of the first people I picked up the phone and called him. And I was like, Tom, you know, I, I need your help here. Um, we uh, we're doing this incredible thing and I, I want, you know, I need your black book and uh, I'll let Tom tell that side of the story. But uh, really from there, that first phone call, the rest is history. And Tom's been on board with us pretty much ever since. Nice. Tom, before you get into the black book and a little bit of your story, let me ask Bo, because you're a professional photographer, you know, the kind of international career. Um, and I, if I remember correctly, New York and California and other such places, and then you moved to North Carolina, which seemingly shifted your whole life. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, sir. Yeah. So, I mean, Dan kept it PG, but um, growing up in the middle of the desert, we got in lots of trouble uh, <laughs> together. And uh for people listening that are Marines, uh, we were right outside of 29 Palms Marine Base. So that's kind of the, the terrible area that we grew up together in. But, you know, after I got done chasing women and chasing false realities and, you know, kind of misrepresenting, misrepresenting myself as a human, kind of going down the, uh, you know, the rabbit hole of life of being involved in between Los Angeles and New York City, I realized that um, I wanted to take my photography in a different route. I wanted to focus on creating something that's going to help people and it's going to give me more purpose in my craft. And so I decided to move to North Carolina from California um, to be closer to Dan and obviously his family. And, you know, like Dan said, we started talking about the idea of creating a photo book that was first based off of my travels of traveling across the United States. And I was asking him about possibly donating some uh, you know, proceeds of, of my personal book to a veteran organization that he recommends. And he just came up with a better idea and was like, Hey, we need to tell the stories of veterans. We need to create a book that's focusing on the 20 years that we've been at war. And from that point on, I mean, I remember we were sitting in the living room talking about it. I was, I was sold on that. That's awesome. And we'll, we'll, we'll keep it R. <laughs> rated for the yeah. listening audience but i can just imagine the kind of trouble that uh, you and dan might have gotten into uh, how about you tom tell us a little bit of your story so um <clears throat> you know I, en I enlisted initially in, in the 75th ranger regiment um on my 18th birthday uh pre 9 11 and then um i was i did that until 2004 got my degree of political science uh, from the University of Illinois, and then started the Veteran Lifestyle Apparel, or one of the guys that helped start the Veteran Lifestyle Apparel company, Ranger Up. Uh, I did that for a while, about eight years. Uh, also, the all-veteran-produced film, Range 15. So I've been doing, I've done a lot of content creation, 100,000K uh, YouTube channel, things like that. I bounced around a little bit, um, and then just through a series of of, you know, sometimes you have the highs in life and sometimes you just sort of hit the skids and the lows. Um, I, you know, between leaving Ranger up and then shortly after that, um, separating and now being divorced from my ex-wife, um, I decided to go backpacking. So I took a ultralight backpack and went all the way around the world. Um, and as I had gotten back, I did a podcast with another, uh, veteran Dan Charlton on his, on his big dad energy podcast. And Dan had heard it. And he was like, dude, I really appreciate what you said. 
um, I've got this, I've got this project that, you know, my childhood best friend who's a photographer and want to do. And um, Dan's not the first vet to pitch a project to me. And usually I'm like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Have you thought about this? And I just end up kind of being like the crusher of hopes and dreams because it's not the project you're bad. It's just that like, you know, I just, I know what it takes to make a project successful. And I just try and be really, you know, honest with that and like the work it's going to take. And as, as Dan's telling me about this, he's like, we're not going to focus on the war story. And we're going to talk about the transition. And we're going to talk about the, the next mission. And I'm like, yeah, I'm getting super, super excited, Mike. I'm like, yeah, let's, you know, like, I'm like, yeah, man, like, what do you need? And he's like, well, you know, I really, we need more veterans for this. I need your little black book, like whoever you can, you can put us in touch with. So at this point, I am just like hype. Like Dan was the Flavor Flav hype man of all Flavor Flav hype mans. And I am just like ready to run through the wall for him. So I fire up my computer. And my first email was to Bill Butler, who's the chief of staff at the National Veterans Memorial Museum. And I'm like, Bill, you got to check this out. Like they need some like some vets. Like this would be a great opportunity for everybody. You know, hit send. And a minute later, Dan texts me because I had CC'd it on. He's like, uh, dude you didn't put a subject line on it. <laughs> so I'm like, oops. Um, so I made sure that the next email that I sent out, uh, which was to General Votel, who eventually was gracious enough to do the board for the book, right. did have a subject line. Um, and actually in the middle of me writing that one to him, Bill Butler got back to me within like 10 minutes and was like, yeah, I'm in. And um, the project started from there. And what was crazy about this one, again, like, I'm used to, you know, people saying no for like content creation and I mean like, oh, well maybe, or, you know, whatever. No one said no on this project, Mike. It was all organic. It was all word of mouth. And we had a couple of people say, I can't do it at this time. And like, that was the only time it was going to work, but no one ever said no. It's just one of the most incredible projects I've ever been a part of. And, um, you know, we, we just, we just went out there and Bo got on the road and, you know, he was sending me the audio files and I'm, I'm, I was also in a transition myself uh, from Chicago where I had been living to Omaha, Nebraska, where I am now. And so I'm literally getting these audio files from him as he's on the road every day. And I'm sitting in the Embassy Suites bar in La Vista, Nebraska, and shouts to my favorite bartender in history, Sherry, because I would get in, she knew what I was doing and like, they have that free like happy hour at the embassy. And those heavy pours of House Cabernet really got a lot of this book written. <laughs> so as, as we as we like to do in long form, shouts to Sherry for uh, helping us get this book done. Well, thank you, Sherry. And uh, speaking of being on the road, so you guys, it's 71 veterans that you guys have in the book. You guys mm-hmm. hit 42 states in 61 days, which is 16,000 miles. Whoa. Tell us that's that story. That was, well, road like road. Tom said, well, he was, um, you know, sitting in luxury. I was out in the freezing negative <laughs> temperatures. So it was kind of funny that, um, you know, we kind of just start, we decided back in January that um, we basically need to do a road trip to capture as many stories as we possibly could. And so I think it was probably a week before my trip. We only had about maybe five or six veterans lined up. And my initial goal was to try and get 30 on the road because I was driving from North Carolina back to California and then back home again. And 
from there, it kind of, I think once I got on the road, I headed straight up to Michigan in the heart of winter in January and was like stopping by and like hanging out with ice fishermen and staying in like little $40 night motels. And, um, I think once I got up to California, halfway through the trip, you know, Dan was coordinating with me and sending me new veterans to meet up with on the road. And after the trip, I spent about a month and a half on that first road trip. We had a little over 35 veterans uh, photographed and interviewed. And that was kind of just the first big push that we did. And then, you know, Tom and Dan went with me to New York and then to Maine. And then I did a couple of trips to Florida, but it was kind of all over the place. I mean, if you looked at a map on the U.S., I was zigzagging all over for about three months. Hey, Bo, what did you learn about yourself on this road trip? You know, going back to my initial introduction, I've always been kind of doing things pretty selfishly as an artist. Um, you know, in the photography space, you know, I, I was making good money, but I was never really focusing on how I can help others. And I think I've realized that out of these 71 veterans that I've met, who I now call my friends, I got to realize that, you know, they're everyday people like myself. And I think that for people listening that might be artists or they might just be people that want to help others, you truly find success when you start helping others. When you put a project together and you're passionate about something, find a way of how you can relate that into helping somebody else. And I think that's where, again, where the true success comes from. And that's just one of the, the, the many important lessons that I've learned so far um, in this journey with Tom and Dan and, and these 71 veterans. Man, that's awesome, Bill. Hey, uh, Dan and Tom, you know, these are fellow combat veterans. Um, what are your takeaways? What did you guys, what did you two learn by, by reading other veteran stories? You know, the, something that uh, General Votel put in his forward, and I, I think it perfectly capture, captures really how I feel about reading all these stories and listening to all these stories and meeting many of these vets in person is although all 71 are unique, I think everybody does have, you know, the, the uniform has, is what has tied us together. You know, our service and our, our willingness to volunteer and serve our country is the one thing that ties us together. And even after we transition and we decide to move on and do something else, it's still the same thread that ties us together. We are still looking for a way to serve. It's whether we're looking for a community to be a part of, to be a, you know, a leader in our church or uh, start up our own business or be part of a new organization. It's, it's very incredible and powerful to, to really read these stories and understand that the service didn't end when we took off our uniform. We're still seeking that. We're still wanting to give back in some way. And that's perfect to Bo's point. Something that he learned on this journey is I think that's exactly it. It's that trying to serve others, you get so much more from it. And I think that's why people who do serve and continue to reenlist or, um, you know, stay in for 30 plus years, you know, 20 plus years, whatever it is, why they keep doing it. Because it's, it's an incredibly powerful thing that you don't want to lose touch on. Uh, Tom, I'd like you to answer that question, but also, Tom, I'm curious, too. One of the themes I see in, in almost all the 71 is the challenges a lot of these folks face leaving the service. And I'd like you mm -hmm. to, to speak to that as well. Yeah, no. So I, I think that one of the things I, I totally agree with Dan um, and Bo about service and continuing to serve. I think that one of the things that really blew me away 
was how unique all 71 stories were. You know, one of the conversations that we had had is like, okay, well, if someone has like the exact same story, what do we do? Do we, you know, put, just separate them in the, you know, in, in different spots in the book? Like if we keep hearing the same thing over and over again, does someone eventually get cut? Um, we didn't have a fixed number of stories we were gonna tell. We just wanted to make sure that it was unique and it was interesting, right? And so what we found was that the reasons that people chose to enlist and were inspired to and what they chose to do and what they choose to do when they continue to serve the United States, you know, as citizens of this country um, to make their communities better. We're all, all 71 are, are so different and so unique. It really ultimately became this really beautiful sort of tapestry of what it is that makes America great. You know, America's strength is in its diversity. America's strength is in the uniqueness of its people. And that's one of the things that, you know, like General Votel said, I really think that people are going to see themselves in these different stories, whether they served or not. And I think that that's because this, on a lot of levels, this is the reflection of who America, you know, really is in, in some of these stories. And as, as far as transition, um, I had a really rough personal transition. And I, and I, I start there because six weeks after I was, done in a combat zone in 2004, I was in an 8 a.m. economics class at the University of Illinois. Um, and that's, you know, and it, and it took me a long time to be able to detangle uh, my identity um, that I had, I had forged and was really, really burnt into my head of being a ranger, um, you know, it's sort of the core of my being to, you know, saying, hey, my next mission is you know, X, Y, or Z, it's to be a citizen, it's to continue to move forward that way. Um, and I think that unfortunately, you have this combination of age, right? Most people, most members of the military are first term enlistees. So when they get out, you're 22, 23, 24, um, your forebrain and your higher cognitive function isn't fully developed yet. And you've gone from being someone who is excellent, truly excellent at one very specific thing or one very specific group of things that's very, very deep and very, very narrow. Um, and now you're going out into the world that doesn't understand you. Less than 1% of the American population is served post 9-11 um, in the military for the global war on terror. That's the Department of Veterans Affairs statistic. Um, and there's these misconceptions of, of who the American veteran is, you know, whether they think we're Captain America, you know, or Captain Marvel, um, or, you know, were these ticking time bombs of, of PTSD when, you know, really neither of these narrative fits, nor frankly, does the emerging sort of vet bro, you know, that, that sort of come into vogue recently. Um, so I, I think that part of the veteran experience is being young, with a really finely tuned and highly developed skill set for a very specific type of excellence. Um, and then trying to be able to show how capable you are at learning your new skill set to a society that sometimes doesn't understand and might have consumed either too many movies or too much of the wrong media. I certainly felt that way when I got out. And I certainly feel like some of the people we've, we spoke with for the book had, you know, similar takes when you sort of stripped it down a little bit. Um, but also, you know, 
the bonds that are forged in the military are, are so strong because they're required because they're, they're things that keep you alive. Like it really is a tribe, um, which I, I feel like is a word that's sometimes overused, but it really is like, really, these are your people. These are the men and women that are going to keep you safe, that you are going to keep safe. And when you leave that, especially at a younger age, um, that, that takes your mind a minute to readjust to. It takes you a minute to, to find that next mission or to find that next um, sort of group of people that, that you can be a part of, that you can bond with the way that you did with the members of your unit in the military. So Tom, I'm going to ask you to follow up on that a little bit. But before I do, hey, Dan, you, speaking of transitions, um, you come up with three phases. One is out of the fight. Two is no uniform. Now what? And three is self-reflection. Um, can you speak a little bit to those three phases as a follow-up to what Tom is saying? And then, Tom, I want to go back to something you just said. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I won't say that those three phases are defined and concrete because one thing you'll you'll learn uh, for anybody who reads the book too is everybody's transition, even though it's difficult, it's still different, and it's still it's long, and it and for a lot of people, it never ends. Um, but I do feel like there are kind of three things that really define, you know, your transition, especially for people in combat arms is the, the first phase is, you know, when you're out of the fight, you are no longer there with your brothers and sisters. You know that you're not going to be their protector and you're not going to be able to watch their back um, because ultimately that's what we were all training for is to be there for each other, to to watch out for each other, you know, in, in our, as we're uh, uh, fighting amongst our enemies. Um, that's the first phase. The, the second is when you take off your uniform, when you realize that, you know, you were part of a bigger organization, much greater than yourself, but now you do not have that commonality with, you know, thousands. You don't share that with many other people. Um, you're now moving on to something that, you can't put on a uniform every day and look to your left and your right and see other people just like you. Um, and then the, the final phase is the self-reflection piece. And this is the one that took me a long time to realize. It took me eight years really to realize that this was probably the most critical phase in the transition. And it's to look at your service and really analyze it and to not just you know, be open about your experiences, but also to share your experiences, to tell people your story, to, you know, share with your colleagues, your friends, your family, the different things that you went through. And, and everybody's going to have demons and everybody's going to have portions of their story that they don't want to share. And that's okay. There's portions of my story that I don't want to share, but you need to be open to others and to realize the importance of knowing yourself through storytelling, through reflecting on your past, you know, before you can really move forward, you need to know what's in the rear view mirror. And I think that's, that's the most critical piece that I hope a lot of veterans who are about to transition are in the middle of transition or still trying to figure it out. Uh, that's the most critical piece that I, that I hope they take away from this book. I love that. Uh, Tom. So um, Petty Officer Second Class Richard Graham, I, I believe that's pronouncing his name correctly, is a SEAL. He talked about in his interview, uh, the system is better understands folks over time. 
Um, and I'm wondering, you know, both Dan and Tom as members who served in combat and Bo, your experience in talking to these folks, you know, is there a th do you see that the systems at large have changed, hopefully for the better, as, as Richard suggests, since the beginning of the war on terror in 2001 to now? To better address the needs of our, our combat veterans. Absolutely. And actually, um, another story, in addition to Richard, that I think is a pretty solid illustration, that is, is Captain Nate Self. Um, you know, Nate was in a very public battle at Takargar, um, you know, working to, to save the lives of, of, you know, the SEALs and, you know, now multiple Medal of Honor recipients on that ridge line, you know, on Roberts Ridge trying to get guys out. Um, and, you know, some of the, the post-traumatic stress and some of the survivor's guilt, you know, that he's been very public about talking about in his book, um, you know, and with, you know, in, in our book a little bit, um, you know, those, those are now dealt with by commands with much more sensitivity, with much more un understanding. You know, for Richard, he was there so early and, you know, it was still sort of the rub dirt on it, you'll be fine, uh, mentality, uh, I, I think is the, the best way that I would put it in the military. And now um, if you're hurt or, you know, or, or if you're, you know, if something broke, you're not lesser, you're just someone who needs to go get medical treatment and rehab. You know, I um, enlisted in 99. I, you know, I was from the, you know, rub dirt on it, you know, drink water, take Motrin, drive on, you know, you better be you know, your shin bone better be sticking out of your shin if you're going to go to sick call. Um, now, I think that it's definitely gotten better, but I also think that it's a very fair critique, especially of the VA, that a lot more can be done and a lot other things can can happen. Um, you know, the, the, the system and the apparatus really wasn't ready for the post um, 0405 surge veterans to leave the service. And you know, some of those problems are well documented, but I think that that is a, a continuing challenge and a continuing point of advocacy for veterans that um, we, we need to we need to remember that the the stress and the psychological burden and the physical tolls uh, don't just stop when they take the uniform off or they don't even stop when they are these are young men and women. Right. Um, you know, we have we have members in this book that have lost limbs that have, you know, uh, TBI that, you know, friends of ours who didn't make the book have the same things. And these are lifelong medical conditions. These are things that are never going to improve. They can only um, their side effects can only be minimized and dampened. And that is definitely something that I think going forward, while we have been better, there's much more that can be improved. How about you, Bo? Having spent uh, all this time with the different combat veterans, you know, do you also see that the systems have improved over time? Too? And I don't. And I just don't want to stick to the VA, but that there are a lot of nonprofits and other institutions that are now supporting veterans. Um, you know, I I I do and I don't. And with that said, is because you know after you know Dan and Tom and I did a lot of research before we started putting this book together. And there's something around close to 60,000 veteran organizations or organizations that support veterans that are out there nowadays. And that's a ton, but which is, which is great, yet there's still an issue. And I think that 
the problem with that is that, you know, some of these, these things like, you know, um, giving a veteran a home or a new truck can really change someone's life. And I don't want to take away from that whatsoever. But I just think that there's a bigger picture involved that we need to come together as not just veterans, but try and bridge that gap and change that conversation with the civilian sector and come together to really make a change in veterans' lives for the long haul, not just a, a temporary kind of Band-Aid, if you will. And, you know, from interviewing these veterans in the 71 and the 20-year war, you know, like we kind of touched on earlier, I realized that a lot of them had really tough transitions. And there's not enough people or businesses out there that are educated enough to help veterans that are going through this weird transition and going back into their civilian uniforms. Well, hopefully, hopefully the people who are listening to this can help influence policy at various levels down the road to make that a possibility for us. I, I will I imagine this is not the last war we'll be series of wars we'll be fighting. Go ahead, Bo. I'm sorry. No, and, and I will say that, you know, with that said, you know, I'd like to also shout out JC Glick again because, you know, the, the main thing that I kind of learned from interviewing him is he mentioned there's four pillars of transition. And one of those pillars was finding a civilian mentor. And that really struck stuck with me because it makes sense. If I look for leadership or I look for organization, or maybe it's, you know, self-defense skills, I'm going to go to any one of these veterans because most civilians aren't going to understand that side of it. So when you're a veteran, it's kind of like, why would you cling on to other, other veterans that are going through their own struggles, the transition, you almost need to find a civilian mentor that understands lack of a better word, that market much more that can help you have a smoother transition over time. Makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. And actually, Bill, let me ask you this, because since you do all the interviews, there, there are two couples, I should say, two two peoples that you interviewed. Mm -hmm. um, you interviewed Lieutenant Commander uh, Chris and Angie Baker from the Navy and the sisters. Uh, yep. It was uh, Katie, Lieutenant Colonel Katie Crome, hopefully I pronounced your name correctly, and Captain Christine Shorts. Shorts. Um, what was it like to interview both of those together? You know, some of those, it's, it's hard to really play favorites, but some of those moments were, were my favorite because they were so unique of meeting up. You know, if you look at for people that, you know, are going to, you know, possibly have a, a book in hand, have the 20 year war, they want to find it, and look through it. When they look at the portrait of the sisters of Christine and Katie, it, it's kind of an interesting dynamic and contrast between Christine being out and Katie still being you know, serving as an officer and you can see her in uniform and then you see her sister in civilian clothes. And it's a really interesting dynamic between the two. And then with Chris and Angie, who are husband and wife that fell in love while serving together, um, basically flew the same plane uh, overseas. It's such a unique story to see their photos of when they were young and in their twenties overseas. And then I met up with them in their home in Colorado and you just see who they are now, you know, in civilian clothes and where they've taken their life and, you know, the successful businesses and, and things that they've started afterwards. It, it truly is inspiring. And I hope that other veterans can look at these portraits and read these stories like Christine and Katie and Angie and Chris and see that there's much more life and they can see something that's going to give them hope. And, and speaking of pictures, pictures are worth a thousand words. Um, your pictures are amazing. Uh, oh, I'm thank you. How you chose? Oh, you're welcome. I'm not surprised because you are a professional photographer. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they 
they should be good. Um, how did you choose which which pictures to include in the book? I think Dan and Tom will love this answer, but you know, this was kind of one of the things that we talked about in the beginning, and this was kind of my artistic sense is that I, I didn't want to, you know, bring studio lights and bring a makeup artist and and bring a stylist and then set it up against the backdrop. I wanted to capture these people as raw as possible, and I think that's the important thing about this is photojournalism that's in this book. And I think that I basically went ahead and, you know, when I spoke to every veteran on the phone and I, and I brought the idea and got them interested in it, I told them, you know, where do you want to meet? Do you want to meet in the comfort of your own home? Do you want to meet in your business? Is there like a local park? Is there something like a hobby that you enjoy doing? And, you know, some of them didn't really know. Some of them gave me really awesome, easy answers to where it made my job easier. But the ones that didn't, I appreciate it so much more because I would get there and meet up with them and I would just find a spot where the lighting was just right, or it was just a perfect scenario that kind of tied in their story. And I wanted to capture them on film and, and, and make it as authentic as possible and not take away from, you know, their facial expressions and who they are. And I know, I know Tom will contest to this personally for him. I, you know, I met him in Chicago at his home. We had absolute shit for lighting. We didn't, you know, it, it's hard to take photos inside an apartment but he had this like awesome ring light set up and we just positioned it in one corner and he stood there and we captured more of a profile shot of him. And I remember, you know, he was showing the photo to his girlfriend and he was like, man, I look old like this, this, it's not like a pretty polished, you know, Photoshop, like awesome kind of image of me that I know he's had his photo taken hundreds of times. And she was like, no, but that's you. Like that's, that's the man that I'm with. That's who you are now. And I think that was so powerful to hear from him and from these other veterans that, you know, it, it was just something so organic and authentic to them. Tom, do you want to respond to Bo? I, yeah, it was, it, it, was, it, was, it was actually amazing to watch him work. And then the other thing is that, because Dan knows me and he's smart enough to understand that sometimes on mission, you don't need to know things. Uh, Bo's being really humble in the fact that he's kind of a wild man in the fact that as an artist, he just had such a clear vision for some of this. Like, um, it was only after the book was done and sent to the publisher that they told me how few pictures Bo took at certain times, because mm-hmm. I, I come from, you know, you know, uh, the fashion side too. And I come from where everything's shot in digital and it's, hundred shot bursts. And, you know, when I, when I'm looking for my apparel photo shoots, you know, I want dozens and dozens of options and, you know, they're like, yeah, Bo took like one picture of this one person. I'm not going <laughs> to tell you which one it is, but it was only one. And I'm like, and I'm looking at them and I'm like, I'm going to kill you. Like, I don't care that it worked out. I don't care that all these pictures are gorgeous. The fact that you thought you could only do this with one, like that blew my mind. Okay. <laughs> because that's not what I'm used to, but that was, you know, that was his, that's part of his gift. It was that he had that clarity of vision. He understood what he was doing and his, his work speaks for itself. Even if, you know, every fiber of my being is like, I don't think I can trust this. I got to learn to trust it for the next project because there's, I mean, again, the results speak for themselves. They're gorgeous, but you know, that's, that's really him and just him having a fantastic artistic vision and his ability to capture those things. And, you know, you know, do things the way that he did. Cause he's right. Like the lighting was awful in my apartment. Like you couldn't see anything. And he just kind of, well, I'll just turn this light on and I'll put it right there. And, you know, look over there, click. What? Is There's that? Tom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah and, and 
And to even kind of add to that, Mike, and we'll keep it short because, you know, viewers, it may not be that interesting to me. Uh, I find it kind of fascinating, but, you know, I'm used to taking those, those, um, I, I guess you would say few photos because I, I shoot on film still. It's kind of an outdated process and I only have 10 shots per roll. And so I was trying to save, you know, I was, I was trying to factor in about three to four on average photos of each veteran. Sometimes like Tom said, there was only one, sometimes two. And it just depended on the situation that I was in, but I've just gotten so used to that for the past 10 years. And for the, the fine art galleries that sell my work, you know, I, I wanted to kind of have more of that challenge in my head. I didn't want to go out and burst because everybody can be a photographer nowadays. You know, we have cell phones that have cameras and we take photos every day. I want to be classical and be very kind of on top of what I'm capturing and spend my time researching and, and location scouting and getting it all in my head so that when I show up, the photo's already been done technically. So a lot of these veterans, I've already taken the photo in my head. It's just me setting it up and pressing a button at that point. Got it. Well, amazing photos. And I definitely want to encourage folks to buy the book, both for the photos and the stories, the 20 year war. Um, let me ask you, you guys didn't use this term, but I'll use the term invisible wounds. You know, a lot of combat veterans they don't necessarily have a physical injury, although they could, but a lot of the injuries are, are, are mental, emotional. And um, one person stands out for me, and this is not to take away from all the other stories, but it's Master Sergeant Cody Alford. Uh, hmm. I think his story is really interesting because he and his wife sold all, the, as he says, their shit, <laughs> jumped in a van and kind of traveled around the country. And one of the things he points to is helping him through this process is the sacred medicine or psychedelics. Yep. And I'm curious if you guys could comment on that because it's, you know, it's in the news a lot more as a tool now being used for a lot of veterans. And there's a lot of good research coming out, um, FDA, DEA approved from MAPS on, for instance, MDMA for PTSD, mm -hmm. PTS, however you want to say it. You know, if you guys would comment on that as a, an approach to help heal combat veterans. So I'll, I'll be really honest. Um, I've actually done MDMA therapy. So... Okay. Um, and, and just from my sort of emotional journey, um, I have, I have a very deep social anxiety that, you know, the psychologist found in me in five, when I was five years old. Wow. So I've been, I've been battling that, um, you know, just personally for me where, um, I'm really super outgoing. I'm super gregarious, but it really just boils down to me figuring out that that was a way for me to control conversations and control my environment. Um, so, you know, and, and it's, it's funny, I, I think that, um, so I'm, I personally am a super huge, uh, fan of those things, as long as it's implemented properly, as long as it isn't just someone who wants to, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, do things like that, um, you know, and, and, and pretend like they're, they're getting help. I think that there's a lot of, um, research that still needs to be done. If, if I'm being completely honest, I don't think that, um, that, you know, I don't know if it's for everybody. Um, I don't necessarily know if I'm being completely honest and this is just me speaking entirely for Tom Amenta. Uh, if the FDA as it's currently constructed is the best sort of lab for that, I just feel like there is a huge bias against uh, things that are non-big pharma uh, I'm not trying to have a conspiracy theory, but it's a very 
easy thing to point out that certain people have certain interests in certain things amongst them money. And uh, sometimes those drive people to try and encourage someone to make a decision. Um, but I know multiple veterans that, that have experimented with psychedelics, not just Cody, uh, especially, you know, really prominent members of, of special operations, um, you know, units and things like that. You know, for me, I don't drink nearly as much as I used to. Um, but I definitely, you know, cannabis is definitely something that will also help calm my anxiety. Um, you know, once, you know, I went sort of through that therapy, um, I did, you know, I, I had two, I had two consultations, um, sort of helped me get through some of the things in my head. And, um, you know, I don't think that there's, um, you, you know, I'm encouraged that the stigmas are going away for things like that, that, um, you know, there, there's something, there's something very powerful to me about the notion that people have been doing this for thousands and thousands of years. Um, all up a generally similar vein um, to either, you know, help quiet the mind or to allow you to process certain things. Or, I mean, even the concept of the, the Native American vision quest on peyote, right? It's, it's meant to have a deeper understanding of yourself. Um, and so I, I do think there needs to be some sort of medical doctoral you know, psychologist, psychiatrist sort of control, if you will. I really don't recommend uh, some random person deciding they need help with their, their mental health to just, you know, do a mushroom cap or, you know, drop some MDMA. I, I do think that, and, the, and so far the research has shown, quite frankly, from what I've read that, you know, it's not just the drug, it's the drug and the therapy. <laughs> it's the yeah. drug and the yeah. talking. It's the person who can help guide you through these experiments, you know, or through these, these things to have a conversation with yourself. And I think that that's the most important thing. And I think that it's, um, for me, for me, at least it was like, having something calm down my anxiety and, and have me feel really, really happy as I talked about some really, really sad things helped. Um, you know, but I also think that light therapy helps. I also think that, you know, there are a lot of other ways out there as well. And I think that the net point, and I apologize, I am rambling a little bit and I understand that is um, to have, is that the more open someone's mind can be and the more that they are willing to admit that there are things that can improve in their mental health and things that can improve in their lives and are willing to seek um, methodologies to help that with, you know, proper guides. You know what I'm saying? I, I think that I, do. I, I think do. that is really what I would encourage everyone to do. If it's just talking, even if it's telehealth, man, like go get a, go talk to a therapist. If it's, yeah. Uh, you know, you, you've got some really deep stuff. Um, you know, I know one former ranger guy that, you know, went down to Peru to do an ayahuasca cleanse and said it was the, it was transformative and, and absolutely changed his life for the better, you know, and, and is now a very, very large proponent of psychedelics, um, that, you know, for him has improved his mental health and, you know, I'm here for it. Um, I think that you've got to find your own path and I think you've got to be open to it. And I also think that it's just the drug. I think that the, it's, it's way less about that and way more about finding the proper therapy with the proper guide and having the 
authenticity and honesty to say, hey, I need to find a way to improve my mental health. I think that's really the core of it. Completely agree, Tom. And I'll just kind of reiterate, set and setting is really important. It's really important to have a good guide. You don't want a, a quote unquote shaman who studied something for a weekend. Uh, the integration afterward is really important. Uh, just so you know, I actually did my master's thesis in the 90s on the therapeutic uses of uh, MDMA and LSD way before the MAPS clinical protocols were initiated in the early 2000s. So I, I support all that you're saying. And, you know, you also mentioned other avenues to explore. And in your book, you guys, there's one, I wish I could remember his name, but he does farming therapy. Maybe you could talk about him if you recall that story. Yeah, that's, um, that would be Eric. Yeah, um, yeah so it's, uh, well, it's either Eric or John. John Jackson, but both of them are, are farmers. Um, one is, is John Jackson, who is an army ranger, who uh, he owns Comfort Farms, who is yeah, named Comfort after. Farms. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. So if it's John Jackson, yeah, he lives in Georgia and he named his organization after his, um, his buddy that was killed overseas in combat. And to kind of give you more reference on that, when I met up with him and took his photo, it's a, it's a beautiful location. It's, I mean, he's got sheep and pigs and chickens and everything that's self-sustainable. He's got a whole vegetable garden set up out there. He invites veterans to come out and work and they do like kind of family dinners. They just had a massive event uh, just a few weeks ago that was sponsored by a, a big barbecue company. But it's, it's just incredible to see, you know, people like John that are doing something to help give back. And, and, you know, to other veterans and, and people around them and to touch on what, you know, Tom said, if we're going back into Cody Alford's story, I think that it's definitely those taboo conversations that most people just, I mean, quite frank, aren't educated enough on. And I don't want to go into the politics of it, but I just think that, you know, from my dad who practices medicinal marijuana, which helps his um, cerebral palsy. And he microdoses with mushrooms and that helps him with his anxiety. I've seen so much incredible health benefits with him interacting with people and being, you know, more social and his hands not shaking as much. And it's, it's just kind of crazy. I, I love that Tom brought up the Native American culture, because to me, that's very dear. Um, I do a lot of ranching out in Arizona with the Navajo. I've been invited to do uh, a sweat lodge with peyote. And I'm waiting to accept it, but it's just, it's incredible to, you know, see those people that have been doing this for thousands of years. And I just think that when we think of those things, we think that we immediately go to the extreme, like, oh, drugs are bad because we think of people overdosing and people abusing their life with it and ruining their careers over it. But if you look at like in a controlled manner, if it's helping you and you're not subscribing to the pharmaceutical companies, which are just putting drugs in you. There's plenty of research that veterans are having struggles by putting that, that stuff in their bodies. And I just think that if it all comes from the earth, it's why not talk about it more? Why not give that an option? Speaking of taboo conversations, there's another one that I like to talk about in terms of one of the people you interviewed, Bo. And that's, um, it's a Sergeant Major, Command Sergeant Major, Tanya Griffin Oxidine. Mm -hmm. Oxidine. Oxidine, sorry. Um, you know, she, in her story, she talks about actually being raped in in the service. Yeah. Which, you know, not I'm, not that I'm surprised that that happens, but I was 
I found it very courageous of her to share that story because it is kind of a taboo in terms of taboo conversations. Um, what was it like to spend time with her? Because she just sounds like she had an amazing career and has done amazing things in her life despite that tragic experience. You know, leading up to her story, I want to loop Dan into this one because um, I think it's important to hear it from both of our perspectives, but it was just kind of a funny story that, you know, Dan and I were texting back and forth on the road and I was telling him that my last stop was going to be just outside Atlanta, Georgia, and that I had a female veteran that I was meeting up with. And he was like, wait, I got a female veteran just outside Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, I was like, oh, I, uh, I'm meeting up, you know, with this woman who's African-American. And he's like, wait, he's like, what's her name? And I was like, oh, Tanya. And he's like, I got a Tanya. So it was funny that him and I were talking to the same woman about coordinating us meeting up. And when I met up with her, she's, she's one of the women who, like you just said, has been able to break down every barrier in her life. And that's never stopped her. Um, she's gone on to do incredible things outside of her extensive and incredible military career. Um, not only to be in the ranking that she is as a woman, but a woman of color for that matter. And to see the struggles that she had as a kid, you know, with facing um, abuse and sexual harassment, not only as a child, but then again, in her military career, it's, it was very eye opening, And it, it, it was one of those stories that when I got back in the car, I just thought to myself that I was just kind of like, wow, like I, I didn't think I'd, I'd hear that story. Like I knew I'd hear the stories of people getting blown up. I knew I'd hear the stories of, you know, people that have been on like insane missions and have started these successful businesses, but to hear that, and that was kind of the opening of the story. It's kind of like where you go from there. There was so much. And just to see how positive and, and how she had a smile on her face the whole time and how honored she was that we were meeting up and photographing her. Um, she's, she's definitely on the top of my list of being people to, to definitely um, be inspired by. Um, uh, Dan, uh, both also called you out. So I just want to see if you want to add anything to that. Yeah, I mean, uh, Tanya is such an incredible person just all around. Um, she's just she's the epitome of somebody who's trying to serve others and be there for others. You know, she she's done incredible things, not only in her military career, but then also after her transition and, and uh, you know, working with uh, merging vets and players and, and being um, uh, being one of the one of the. Um, I'm trying to think of the correct term, but basically the leader of the, the Atlanta chapter um, and leading a lot of the conversations that MVP puts on and, and uh, being vulnerable to everybody and, and sharing her story and just realizing that that piece of her does not define her, but it does open up the ability for her to communicate more effectively with others and to lead others and, and share those stories that are difficult to tell, but then also um, it allows others to open up and to realize that, yeah, we've all got wounds, but we can, wounds will heal. The scars will always be there, but we don't have to always look at our scars and think that they're ugly. You know, it's what, what defines us and what really makes us beautiful in a lot of different ways. And she's just, she's an incredible person. And I, I, I hope even if people don't buy the book that they look her up and, and read her story because she's just an awesome person. Yeah. hundred percent. Well, yeah, and, and let me suggest people to buy the book. <laughs> sure. um, so let me ask you each one last question. 
And that'd be, what do you want the listening audience to know about your all's book, The 20 Year War, a photojournal dedicated to veterans of the global war on terror and their stories? Well, you wanna go first? Yeah, I would, I think my biggest takeaway on creating this is, is learning so much about myself in this process. It's, I don't wanna selfish, like selfishly promote the book. We're very proud of it. And it's, it's all of our first books that we've ever done. We put a lot of time into it, but I think what's more important is the conversation surrounding veterans on how can we help them more? How can we help put them in more businesses? How can we help share their story? And I'm very honored that we have so many veterans in this book. And, and I hope that we can continue to maybe do more books, maybe do sequels if this book does well enough. But I just hope that the ongoing conversation continues and that it's stronger than ever that we've ever seen before. Um, and I'm just truly honored for the, the men and women that have served for our country and that decided that they wanted to be a part of the 20 year war and, and have their photo taken and have us interview them. That's, that's probably my takeaway. And I know that Dan and Tom have a lot more to say because you know, that they've been in those shoes, they've been overseas. And, and again, I'm just a civilian, so I don't know much about that sector, but I'm just, I've fallen in love with the process. And I hope that when people open this book that they appreciate it as much as we do. Thank you, Bo. How about you, uh, Dan or Tom? Um, you know, for me, especially with the, the recent events that have happened, I, I just, it's been unfortunate, perfect timing, how this has all played out. But I, you know, I was really feeling a sense that people were losing, uh, a connection to the veteran community. I felt like people were forgetting about the wars that people were still fighting in overseas that they were forgetting that there was even a conflict, that there was a reason for people to even serve. And I felt even though, even some of the people that did know those that are still serving, they're not hearing the right stories or they're taking away the wrong pieces of information from these stories. And what I hope that people get from the book is that no matter you know, when somebody served in the last 20 years, no matter what they did, no matter uh, what MOS, what branch, what rank, it doesn't matter, that coming out of this war, our nation's longest conflict, that we are going to have the greatest generation, you know, the second greatest generation, um, because everybody who has served in the last 20 years has a certain level of experience that we haven't had in peacetime, that, you know, people can really become incredible human beings in their communities and it's all because of the experiences that they've had in the last 20 years. So that's what I'm hoping people get from it. Thank you, Dan. And how about you, Tom? Well, I, I think there's two lessons that I hope um, come out of this. The first for uh, fellow veterans like myself, that uh, this book can serve as a powerful reminder that um, one, we did our, we did our job and, service members continue to do this job honorably in some of the most difficult circumstances. And that when we transition, when we take our uniform off, our competitive advantage and the, and the thing that we carry forward that I think is a thread through this book is our ability to adapt, overcome whatever challenge or task is put in front of us and to um, work hard 
you know, as hard or harder than anyone else in the room. That's those, those are really the things that if you learn the right lessons from your time in service, it's that to be adaptable, to, to refuse to quit and to work really, really hard. Um, and then for, you know, civilians that are, that are curious and want to understand more of the veteran experience is one, um, that, you know, those are the things that we bring to the table. Um, we're not Captain America. We're also not broken by some of these, these experiences and to see, you know, one of the things we wrote in the afterward, almost how frustratingly normal we are. I think that as the, as there's less people that have, that have served, um, you know, because we don't have a draft and these wars haven't required this massive human, human capital expense, right. Um, in, in, in comparison to previous things, I think that there's some mythos and, you know, meets, um, spin meets, um, you know, sort of narrative, you know, simplistic narrative that's out there. And I really hope that, that civilians can look at this book and, and have that clutter cut through and see who, you know, the average American veteran is. And that is the person that, you know, is, is halfway down your block that just chose to, to do this one job for, for a period of time and is now continuing to work to make America the greatest country in the world. Um, you know, those are really the things that I, that I hope that, that people get out of it along with, you know, a little bit of also what Dan said, where, um, now veterans and the service members are back in, in the conversation. I, unfortunately, um, we could do an entire other podcast about what's going on in the world today, but, um, at its core, um, you serve, you know, it's called service for a reason. It's because we are, we're willing to sacrifice certain things for a higher calling and a greater good. And, uh, we did that honorably and, um, but it was still a job and, you know, we, we were aware of that. And I just hope people can see the, the sort of trade-offs to those things. Now, where can people find the 20-year war, a federal journal dedicated to veterans of the global war on terror and their stories? And not only find it, but obviously I want to encourage people to purchase it as well and read the amazing stories of 71 combat veterans. Um, so a couple of different places. Uh, I highly encourage anybody to go to 20yearwar.com and that is spelled out T-W-E-N-T-Y, yearwar.com. Um, you can purchase it directly there on the site. There's a standard edition and a limited edition, um, but we're also going to be carrying these in a few museums and that I highly encourage people to go visit. Um, there will be some copies at the National Veterans Memorial Museum in Columbus, Ohio. They do an incredible job um, showcasing what a veteran is and, and telling their story. Um, and we're also doing a book launch event actually here on, on 9-11. Uh, at the museum and then also at the Airborne and Special Operations Museum in Fort Bragg, uh, North Carolina. You can also pick up a copy there. But again, another incredible experience for people to understand what, you know, warriors go through and especially as, a, as an airborne and special operator, um, what it takes to be a, a three-time volunteer. Um, and people can get a book there as well. Great. Well, let me encourage folks to do that, the 20-year war. Uh, Dan, Tom, Bo, I definitely appreciate your time. I wish you guys much success on this book. 
and may it help make the changes you guys are all hoping for. Thanks for joining me on today's podcast. Hey, thank you, Mike. We really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you.